Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education. Uh, usually we have guests and we talk about maths, but this time we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, with me, I've got Christopher Such. Hi, yeah, great to be back. Laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should keep this in. I think this is this is this is fun. This is light. In 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 between recording interviews with uh, interesting teachers, what we're going to do is we're going to have a chat about some things that are um, frequently come up in conversations with teachers or that might be of interest. And um, and so the focus of this episode will be number bonds. But the first thing we do is we're going to. Oh God, it's terrible. Um, Before anything else, let's introduce you to a segment called What You're Reading For. Christopher, what are you, what are you reading for? What am I reading for? I mean, I love the, um, loving the Bill Hicks reference, to, just to throw that out there. I, I, I don't think we should leave it unsaid. I, th- I think we, yeah, I think explicit is the way to go. Uh, currently, um, just this week, uh, I've, uh, there was a recommendation online by um, Peps McRae. He, he, when he says something's worth reading, I tend to follow it up. Um, read a paper called uh, Cognitive Load and Classroom Teaching, The Double-Edged Sword of Automaticity. Um, it's not the newest paper in the world. I think it's about 2006, 2007. Um, it, for those people who are interested in cognitive load theory, you can argue it treads on ground that you may have already thought about, but it was actually a welcome reminder of some things I hadn't it just hadn't been in the forefront of my mind. I think when it comes to thinking about cognitive load theory, I tend to think about um, children, specifically how to deal with instruction for children, how you might support them understanding things, how and when we might minimise um, cognitive load. This paper is all about teacher training, which is a really interesting angle on things. Um, I think it still has a lot to say about how to deal with students, but effectively it looks at um, what it describes as the, the dual process model of cognition, which is effectively the idea that we, we, we operate in two modes. Um, this kind of controlled, conscious, slow, effortful mode where we have to think um, about exactly what we're doing. And then this kind of automatic, fast, effortless, non-conscious mode where we can just, yeah, we, we can do things without thinking. Um, for those people who are familiar with Daniel Kahneman, that whole thinking fast and slow idea. Anyway, to kind of cut to the chase, the idea behind it was that um, there are kind of, it's it's important to develop automaticity, um, but there are um, issues either way with it. So the positive of developing automaticity is obviously that it frees up um, cognitive resources when you're dealing with something complex like teaching. But the downside to developing automaticity is that you can uh, develop something that um, is automatic, but isn't necessarily ideal. Those people out there who have tried to learn a new sport like golf will know if you ingrain a bad habit and it becomes automatic, trying to undo that, even with conscious effort, can be a blooming nightmare. So I think that's the that, that's the key message of um, the paper, that there's, you know, this idea of automaticity is a bit of a double-edged sword um, and that we need to uh, think carefully about how and when we ingrain automaticity in um, student teachers in particular. Really interesting paper. I highly recommend people check it out. What about what about you? What have you been uh, tackling this week? 
Well, I actually, I actually had um, some stuff prepared on that paper as well because I found oh, it really interesting. Well, yeah, I want to know what you think. It's going to be fascinating because you'll probably say, I don't think you've really understood that paper, Chris, which is, which is fine. I want to hear that. <laughs> no, I think you have. Um, my first reaction was, why won't they just let us be happy? Because we spent all this time trying to get our teachers to this stage where they're, you know, they're automatic in, in their behaviours. They've got all this... And, you know, all the core things down. And then they say, well, actually, no, this is a double-edged sword. And, but then I thought it's actually probably a bit of a niche concern because how many teachers are really at that point? If you, if you were to look at the general population, and I, don't, I think you've got a minority who are operating in that realm where they need to um, stop and think about, you know, um, am I just acting on instinct? Or is this the right thing to do? It's interesting they talk about it in a teacher training framework because what you're saying there, I immediately start immediately started thinking, oh, okay, the other the kind of the, the nastier side almost of this double-edged sword, it's it's kind of more applicable to the likes of me who have been teaching for over a decade and still recognise pretty unfortunate ingrained ingrained habits that I'm trying to work my way out of that are unfortunately automatic. So while it might may apply to teach, teach training, it's kind of I think there's a long term teacher development aspect to this paper as much as it's about initial teachers. Yeah, totally. I'm I can't really see it applying to it. You know, I, I'm not sure how experienced you can possibly be after a year. And um, and certainly, I imagine someone who is doing things automatically. And I, I'm not. I'm like you said. The first thing I thought of was, well, what am I doing stuff like that? Do I need to think <laughs> about my practice? And um, but then I also think, you know, that that's possibly why thinking has stood out to me as something to really focus on because it is about, um, you know, using the right tool at the right time. And um, you know, you asked if I've been reading anything. I've actually been reading "Making Kids Clever" by David Dai Dai, um, and I th- I thought the two tied really well together because the whole idea of purpose for practice and, and then rehearsing the right things sort of comes across really strongly. And, you know, I've always said that I don't see much difference between learning to teach and learning in the classroom. And, and, it, and it's possibly because of that, you know, practicing the right things, you know, and trying to go beyond competency in an idea. And, and again, I think, yeah, I think with a dose of thinking, that's where we stop ourselves from falling into a trap because I, I reckon it, it is probably the most experienced teachers listening who will read this paper and think right okay am I am I acting on impulse or is this the best thing for my kids but I yeah I can't imagine anything before four or five years and um, you know there may be outliers but um yeah I, I just can't see it but in terms of making kids cleverer it feels like a really nice summary of Dai Dai's books to date. I totally agree. No, I think it is. Uh, it seems like he's put together a lot of the ideas that he's had in the past. I mean, for those people who have read um, What If Everything, I think it's called What If Everything You Knew About Teaching Was Wrong. Um, for those that there might be, I won't say repetition. I think that's possibly unfair on Dai Dao. Um, but there are certain elements in there that you'll, you'll recognise. And if you've read that book first, this one might not feel quite so quite so important. Um, I think the way he structures an argument through a book, um, the way that it develops in a really understandable fashion from start to finish is uh, impressive. Um, I, I think we've, I, 
I've, I may have mentioned this to you before you got to the book, which is possibly unfair. I, think, I don't mean to bias your account of it. I don't think I buy into the um, some of the genetic side of things, particularly relating to Plowman's work, in quite so uh, to the extent that he does. Um, I, I mean, I understand kind of where Plowman's coming from in that he's fought for decades even to establish the idea that genes have any kind of impact. So I understand why he's now kind of kind of hammering that idea home. Um, I just don't think that the research, if you look into the kind of twin studies, this sort of thing is quite as cut and dry as uh, Didal makes out. But it, that isn't a particularly over, you know, that isn't a, a, a massive weakness of the book. Interestingly, I think of all the bits when I talk about this flowing argument, I think that is a section that you can almost remove and the argument still works. Um, beautifully from start to finish from we do this and why do we do this because we do that and why do we do that because we do that from start to finish and I think we've also said before he's clearly quite he's, he's such an enjoyable writer to read uh, makes complex things simple so yeah it's well worth a read I think yeah the the analogies in it are great and some of the examples and and certainly whenever I read it I know that I don't have the background reading to make any sort of judgment on how accurate you know anything on genes and stuff um, might be and um, so I, I was focusing really when I read it on the sort of the stuff that's applicable to teaching and learning um, and I think that's always really well researched you know so almost like rigorously and um, trawled through the sources to make sure that they're um, as reliable as possible and um, and then I was thinking about whether or not I would have preferred to read this book first or the wrong book and um, because the wrong book is a total show you know, it's a jolt to the system and um, and he really shocked you know there were shockwaves going through the education world when you know it was in 2014 when that book came out and I've read it maybe four times um, and still haven't really got to the bottom of it but when I read it I remember thinking here are lots of things that we've been doing that we shouldn't be doing that I agreed with and but there were also a fair amount of things I thought no hold on he's not right here and then only over time going back to it. Whereas I think this book, Making Kids Cleverer, is a more gentle um, mode of ingress into those big ideas, you know, ideas which are pretty commonplace now, but weren't necessarily, what, six years ago. And um, so it's really interesting. I'm not, I think I'd probably recommend it to new teachers. Um, but if you're older and perhaps less malleable to new ideas then I, I would I'd point you towards say uh, what if everything you knew about education was wrong because it's a it's a kick up the backside and um, so it depends what you want but the, you know both are really extremely well written um, and, and it was really enjoyable even though I was familiar with quite a lot of the education based you know source material and yeah it, it was it was a, a pleasant ride from start to finish. I mean just one last thing almost on that gene stuff I mean worse the worst case scenario with something like that is that it's provocative and you go and read further, which is when I read that book, I have to admit, I was astonished. I mean, I ended up in a brief, um, he was generous enough to have a very brief back and forth with me. It was one of the first things, conversations I ever had on Twitter, but it, it made me go away and read more about the subject of um, twin studies in particular, relating to um, genetic research. And it's, yeah, I mean, so worst case scenario, the stuff you disagree with is so is provocatively written enough that it makes you think well I need to know whether this is true or not I need to know whether I fully agree with it um, but no yeah really enjoyable read cool and um, so then our attention turns now to 
I suppose the main theme of this group of episodes or group of episodes, um, how do you solve a problem like, and this week it's how do you solve a problem like number bonds? Indeed, something very close to my heart. Um, yeah, I, I figure if if you don't mind, I'm going to start it off with uh, we, we have. We, let's not pretend otherwise. We've prepared some questions, but I'm going to throw the first one at you, which is okay. I'm going to give you actually what the, I think the hard bit. Just sum it up for us. What are number bonds? Before you answer, though, I'm just going to quickly say I saw um, a Twitter thread the other day where a chap in his, I guess, 50s and 60s was looking at number bonds and immediately said, "Ugh, why don't they just call them sums anymore? Um, so I'd like you to, in your answer, I'd like you to kind of somehow put that chap's mind to rest that either it's, there's, there's a reason why number bonds um, as, a, as a phrase means something that sums doesn't. Go for it. <laughs> it's a super question. Um, and when I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, this is, the, this is my first chance for Chris to be truly disappointed in me whenever I give a, a subpar answer. Um, but I, th- I thought the first thing, that you see, for instance, if you Google what is a number bond, you will see it's when you add two numbers together and you get a given value. And, and I think, and I, I, I did some counting, six out of the 11 on the first page of Google give that response, and which is pretty disappointing because A, most people know that, and B, it's not helpful to anyone who really wants to know what a number bond is. So without... Um, Without, I saw would it be any sort of backing from anyone? Um, I, I think they are a representation of the composition of number. Um, and in particular, you know, you're moving towards a mental representation of those relationships um, that are contained within a given value. You know, for instance, the fact that four is two and two but it's also one and three or zero and four. Um, and so, yeah, I think at its core, it's a, a representation of a relationship, but the relationship is undefined until you identify, you know, it's almost like atoms, you know, it's only when you identify one of the parts does the full relationship become clear, I think. Love it. I mean, that's a much more academic sounding answer than I, I would have ever come up with. I mean, because my view when when I saw this chat talk about, oh, is it just sums? Well, there's part of me that sees the nature of number bonds being more about. Uh, again, I think there's a there's a there's a, co- a colloquial nature to this in that we we use it in different ways, and it ends up taking on you know, not a really precise definition. But the way I think of number bonds is more like number relationships, like you say. So I think of um, the fact that three and six go together make nine isn't merely a sum. It isn't just three plus six or six plus three. It's also contained within it nine, nine minus six or nine minus three. Um, so it's kind of those relationships. It's also the fact that I would see if someone said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm working out 347 add 2792. And, th- you know, that that's a sum, no doubt about it. But I wouldn't. And you could consider it a number bond it obviously could be if you thought it worthwhile but really when we're talking in a pedagogical sense about number bonds we're also talking about the stuff where we think no I I want children to have this in a way that's more accessible this is like the number facts or better to put it number relationships that I want them to 
take to another le level of accessibility beyond, oh, I can calculate it with a pen and paper, or even I can calculate in my head, but there are several steps. So whereas we might talk about number bonds inside 10, inside 20, or number bonds two or in two 100, et cetera, how often would we talk about number bonds to, you know, 3,924 or whatever? There's, there's a sense in which we're talking about the valuable core um, number facts, I think, at least in the way that teachers, I've seen teachers use uh, number bonds. What would you reckon? Is that kind of, do you think that kind of goes along nicely with your slightly more academic view, which was, you know, impressive, I have to admit. <laughs> um, yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, because I think relationships is key. Um, I was trying to think whether or not it would be classified as a structure because, you know, subtraction through number bonds is, or through finding the bond um, in, in whatever case, you know, for instance, finding the bond to 10 can often be one of the one of the structures that we that we point children towards. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it's about how those component parts behave with each other. Um, and that can be whatever size you want. Um, and like you said, seeing things and seeing patterns, you know, because 37 and say 1037, there's, there's really a very small jump really whenever you're operating with those kind of numbers, I think. Um, but I suppose you almost started dancing the next bit. Why are they, why are they important? Ah, so yeah, I mean, this I think ties in quite nicely with what we were talking about earlier in with regards to automaticity and cognitive load. Um, I, I think it comes down to the, the key reason why having a real grasp of number bonds and having them to a, to a level of automaticity over a long period of time, um, why that becomes so valuable is because of all the ways in which you come to use these number bonds, these number facts. In, in other areas of mathematics. And if you are still having to say, calculate um, seven plus five is 12. Um, if you're still having to calculate that by counting on or um, through other means, rather than just knowing it or being very close to just knowing it like that, um, then you're, so much of your cognitive resources is taken up by doing that. How many times have we seen children doing something like written, sorry, written addition and they do seven plus five and they work out that it's 12 and they maybe put everything in the right place, but then they're just lost on what to do next because they haven't been able to concentrate on the, um, the algorithmic procedure. They just haven't been able to concentrate on it because they've been devoting so much mental resources to working out seven plus five. And it's easy to think of it as well. Is it just written addition? Is it just then, you know, written subtraction that they're useful for? But it goes so much further than that. If you think, going back to seven plus five, if you're looking at um, angles around, uh, adjacent angles around a point on a straight line, and you've got, you know there's an angle of 70, an angle of 50, and an angle that's missing, making up the three, you know they add, a, add to 180, and knowing that, seven plus five is 12 and thus 70 plus 50 is 120 and thus the missing number is um, 60 degrees is so much easier to keep that whole process in mind if you know seven plus five and thus you're at a stage where 70 plus 50 is pretty much automatic as well whereas if you're the kid who's getting out the pencil and paper to work out 70 plus 50 um if before and then having to get out the pen and paper to subtract it from a from um that that what i did in my head effectively taking 12 tens from 18 tens if you're then doing that in your head at, sorry with a piece of paper as well 
what are your chances of remembering what it is you've got to do at the end of the problem? It's really about making something automatic to free up cognitive resources for um, later, um, more complex things you're going to do with those numbers. Um, that's the fundamental reason why bonds are so essential. But what would you add to that? Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's a, it's a chunk of information that you can easily hold. Um, there, are, there are two or three sort of, and I'm going to go back into the academic stuff here, and two or three ways of describing why they're useful. And I suppose the first one that, that I sort of talk about and thinking deeply is the idea of proceptual um, reasoning, where you're taking the fact that this is much more than just a, um, than just a procedure or this is much more than a concept. It's almost both melded together. Um, but one of the upsides of COVID is the online CPD and there is or there has been a series of lectures um, on the Erno Lightning online colloquium and in Finland they've been doing these lectures you know once every fortnight since probably October and two of the two of the talks really stand out the the first one is and I hope I pronounce this properly Leifen for Schaffel um, and he works in Leuven in Holland, I believe. And he calls it um, adaptive expertise. And that's having the confidence to look at something and make a decision which is the best um, or most efficient approach. You know, for instance, if you looked at um, a subtraction question and decided that, for instance, subtraction is not actually necessary, the fact that you know what the gap is, you know what the difference is because you've got knowledge of a bond. Um, and then the other one was John Starr where he talks about pr procedural flexibility. And I think somewhere in the middle of all three of those ideas, you've almost got the reality of the situation. You know, And I, I mentioned them because the videos are online and I, th I think I'll add it to the show notes of this and um, totally for free and really, really interesting in terms of they give examples of their research with you know very basic arithmetic, but actually exploring how pupils think um, about the mathematics and, and whether or not that's something that we naturally do or, or whether we need primed. And, and John Starr in particular talks about, well, what is the best method? Can we decide? Can we, you know, assign a value? And, and I, yeah, that so 100% with you. And that's why they're important to me is because of the flexibility they allow later on in the sequence, you know? And when you said... Um proceptual understanding there was a bit of a like flashback to I, I can't remember the name of the paper um if that can go in the show notes for me as much as anyone else because I remember reading about proceptual understanding a few years back um and it's something that had completely slipped from my mind until you uh, mentioned it just there I think it's, I remember it being interesting so um yeah, um, it might be something that's across a series of papers. I just remember having read about it somewhere. So if you can like dig up um, that, that'd be really, um, really useful. In regards to what you mentioned about the, I'm not going to try and say the name of the, um, the colloquium you mentioned, but yeah, there's some fabulous stuff on there uh, recently. Um, I think Clements and Sarama did a video on there as well. And obviously any that work that they do on early mathematics is always worth, um, worth a look. So um yeah, good answer, Kieran. <laughs> I like it. Um, so I guess the next stage then, if we, you know, if we're looking at, um, uh, if we've, you know, we've discussed why they're important, 
how would I get the next thing is how would, how do you think they are currently taught and and I'm going, leaning towards not necessarily what you see or what you would advocate but more across schools generally what would you say is the um the like the, the modus operandi of the most teachers when it comes to dealing with these so that that's absolutely um, how I'm going to approach it and how I imagine you know based on time in schools and stuff I actually was having this conversation with one of our early years leads today and we were talking about how it doesn't need to be that way and but essentially I I reckon paper and pencils are involved quite a lot and repetition and and perhaps a little a little less thought as to the sequencing of which bonds and when than is necessary so that, that that i think you know based on for instance resources that you see online and um, that's where i'm drawing that conclusion from and from you know just you know years of being a really bad teacher as well <laughs> i would i'd say um i'm with you on a lot of that stuff there i mean i've seen um learning objectives going books which say i you know i will we like lo to learn number ones to 10 you think oh that's that's what you're going to do with this hour is it and then they're and then they're done fabulous I'm, lo I'm looking forward to this lesson you see teachers trying to attempt them in a single lesson um i think a common thing is to see um when you talk about sequencing i think uh, like specifically issues i've seen in there are um particular schemes or um just the way teachers attack them where they say okay so we'll, we'll learn our number bonds to 10 and the next year we'll learn our number bonds to 20 as if the number bonds to 10 are of any use at all without number bonds to nine number bonds to eight number bonds to seven etc i mean i i um yeah I, I would say alongside that i agree i mean i'm going to get into the the if you like double-edged sword of repetition and how it can be useful and how it might not be in certain cases um, but yeah, just gen lots of, like say, paper and, pe paper and pencil, again, not necessarily a bad thing, but paper and pencil, lots of repetition and some missing and teaching, trying to teach them a single lesson sometimes is the kind of thing that I have come across as well. I'm not saying that's practice everywhere, but I do think that's, that that's a common way of going about it. Yeah, definitely. So I'm trying to think, um, oh, it's, it's like, I believe, not wanting to give the game away too much, too much, feel free to delete this bit if you like, but uh, probably a good time for you to, to fire back an equally challenging question. Yes, and I, I was just thinking about how to segue. Do the national curriculum and, like, as you say, schemes, perhaps give a false impression of number bonds teaching? Well, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've... Um, I, I we've obviously discussed these questions a little bit in the past just through you know you know having talked about maths etc and if you'd asked me if this question a few days ago I probably would have started having a go at the national curriculum but to be absolutely sure I went back and I think I've got an impression that is probably unfair um, and that it's actually the uh, certain math schemes that are uh, perhaps somewhat misleading um, the national curriculum do absolutely say number ones inside 10 or I think it might say within 10 within 20 etc which is a perfectly acceptable way to describe it um, I think it's certain schemes certain uh, schools etc have interpreted that as as we said before number bonds 210 number bonds 220 and have missed out a whole load um, and dare I say missed out some significant chunks of potentially 
productive pedagogy along the way as well. So does the national curriculum give a false impression? I don't think it probably necessarily does in this area, but I definitely think that from what I've seen, certain schemes, and, and dare I say schemes that are very strong in other aspects, I'm not going to you know, do the dirty, I'm not going to name names, but that are very strong in other aspects, when it comes to this aspect of their key stage one or beyond provision, it's a bit ropey in what they say. They do say things like, number one's to 10, here's this lesson, off you go. Um, is that your experience? Does that reflect what you see? I think with if if a, a company or organization have taken the time to make a resource you know it's it's perhaps unforgivable that, that is the case because those bonds within are so important and like you said it it's clearly stated but i can see why teachers would make the very literal, literal interpretations of the national curriculum that they do for instance you know with written subtraction of of two numbers you know it's almost a case of that's the the thing that stands out that's what we go for number one to ten they stand out. Let's go for that. Um, because of the way the curriculum was introduced. Um, so in, I remember what was 2012, we had the consultation. And then almost overnight, we were expected to know how to deliver this curriculum. Um, and, you know, perhaps number bond should have been sort of centered what we were doing before. But I think without the support that's necessary, you know, support has been building over you know, the last 10, 10 years or so um, for the sort of the practices that we're trying to develop as a nation. But whether or not that was that that should have been there on day one is another thing, because I remember, you know, levels disappeared and we all had to learn how to how to teach with our levels. So we all repeated what was previously in levels, but give them our own names and our own colors. You know, there were still sub-levels, but just not a name. And it's only really after years. You know, it, it's been a decade, basically, of discovery. And some of the stuff that's out there now is we, we really understand the benefit. But that wasn't a shared understanding in 2012, 2013. And so I can totally see why teachers would literally interpret things the way they, they, they have and, and do sometimes. Because without the requisite expertise you will be drawn towards the structure or the the sort of the facade that is that is most easily recognizable and that is number one to ten you know and they are important but as you say the comp if, if we go back to the composition of number definition there's so much more to you know those what are considered the simple numbers the easy numbers and um, but i don't think it's the national curriculum's fault per se I mean, I, I, I realised that I was kind of under the impression that there was something amiss, something amiss there. And actually, I don't think there, there is. In terms of just thinking about um, how this is, how the national curriculum and certain schemes, et cetera, have been, sorry, how uh, people have interpreted certain aspects. I think also in terms of pedagogy, thinking back to the question before a tiny bit as well. Um, I can't help it. I, 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 I'm going to do this a lot, I imagine, but I have to draw a similarity uh, between um, this and some of the views that teachers have about learning to read in that with number bonds, with, there are there seem to be certain children, and I'd say it's a decent percentage, maybe 30, 40%. You just show them enough and you just, maybe they've played board games at home. I don't know what it is. You just show them enough and maybe not even that many, and they've got it, and it's quick, and it's natural. And so you can get the idea that 
oh yeah, just a little bit of repetition and we're good to go. In the same way that with reading, there are certain children, you can just read to them and point to the words enough and they will pick up phonics. They will learn those um, sound, sound spelling correspondences and they'll learn what blending and segmenting are and you're just amazed by it. But this, I think, sadly gives us a false impression that this is something that's the optimal way or even a sufficient way of teaching things for um, for all children. And it's only, um, I think the reason I thought about this is you were talking earlier about um, years and years in the profession. It's only when you work with those children that have struggled with this sort of thing for a significant period of time, and then you try other approaches beyond mere repetition, though repetition obviously has value, that, that, that go beyond only repetition, that you start to say, oh, well, hang on a minute, um, there's, there's something more to this. There, we can do this in a better way for particular students. Um, so, um, if I may, I'm going to move it on a little bit because I feel like I'm starting to, to hint in that direction. How else might they be taught uh, productively? How else might we take number bonds? And I mean, you mentioned earlier about sequencing, and I think that's a really important um, part of what this involves but I think there's other aspects to it too how how might we go about sequence uh, sorry how might we go about teaching these in a uh, more productive fashion that maybe benefits all children rather than just a few that was a question that even the most hardened conference attendee would have been proud of you know that, that question at the end that's more of a 30-minute diatribe <laughs> yeah yeah no I appreciate it. it's going to have to be bullet points to some extent unless we're going to make like a five-hour podcast and I'm not sure anyone wants that no, but it's a fantastic question. Um, and actually, some of the stuff you've shown me recently, um, I think people would really benefit from um, hearing about. But I think I'm absolutely with you. You know, my own son's six, so I had an extended bit of time with him during the first lockdown in sort of mid-2020. And because I've worked in schools in areas of high socioeconomic deprivation my whole career, it was the first time I'd really seen, you know, guaranteed someone who had a reasonably affluent background and had that mathematically rich upbringing, you know, the, like you say, the board games. And so with a little bit of pointing, that's, that's all he needed to memorize the bonds. You know, they were just there and then we could focus on, you know, the um, being flexible when we're, when we're exploring calculations and stuff when I had to teach him. Um, but typically, we will start with repeated exposure to a visual representation or, or a concrete representation of those structures. Um, for instance, you will see quite often, you know, for instance, in the sand and the water, um, you, will, you will see things like Numicon and, you know, with a key that unlocks the, the matching, um, matching piece. You know, in year one, we continue with the continuous provision up until Christmas. Um, simply because we want to put an emphasis on those those fundamentals. And so you, you will often see that in our year one classes where they're doing those activities, where they're, they're bringing things together and their attention is being drawn towards the, the patterns they see, you know, the use of colour, you know, for instance. Um, but I think in the first instance, it's, it's seeing that all the time. It's becoming a normal part of the environment. And then any opportunities they do have to explore, any focused sort of input from adults focuses on some sort of 
concrete representation that they can manipulate, you know, so that they can put them together and they can they can see what it looks lined up and across. And then over time, you're almost becoming a bit more explicit between what they're experiencing and the the idea. You know, because I'm a bit, I'm a bit low to say that we go straight into the abstract numerals too early, because I think you can have a sense of five and five without being able to write five and five. Like secretarial skills, I make a point in my in my schools to separate those from the mathematics skills early on. You know, year one, year two, because ultimately, if they can express an idea through a concrete resource, say they had multi cubes, and they were able to show you, then um, you know, the addition of three. Uh, single digit numbers that's much more valuable than being able to write stuff down you know they will have if, if they struggle to write they'll have intervention you know but ultimately it's that sense of how those numbers behave together like you say those, those relationships and it's i think it's through multiple repeated exposure to different scenarios with concrete resources that's that that's almost where i'm going without being too specific i think repetition will come you know for instance if there's a child who is maybe 18 months behind at the start, at the end of reception, you know, behind what, so say for instance, learning trajectories would consider the typical journey of a neurotypical child, then it may be a case that you give them extra sort of input and stuff. But I think in the first instance, it's about experience. And I think, and you've also alluded to this, it's about this is going to happen over a long period of time. So if our pupils are three years old when they come to nursery, and it's Christmas of year one by the time we expect them to have a fair idea, you know, enough of an idea to be able to manipulate those bonds in mathematics lessons. That, that's quite a long time. Would I be right in thinking here that this, um, not, not necessarily pedagogy, but when you're talking about year one specifically, that you're talking kind of bonds specifically with it two and within 10 before that in like at that stage in year one before you, you're not looking at things kind of past 10 in terms of number bonds at this stage you want them to have real um natural flexibility with the bonds inside and 210 before you you're looking at anything kind of beyond that would that be true yeah absolutely i mean i'm, I'm aware that uh, um this kind of links to our next question as well, where we're talking about the prerequisites. I think actually it makes sense for us to kind of blend these two together in that what are, what are the prerequisites for number bonds? Because the prerequisites and for number bonds and the pedagogy of teaching number bonds themselves can't really be separated. There's um, the, the lineage of them is just too, um, it's too tightly woven. I think you're absolutely right that it begins um, with familiarity. Uh, I think it begins with number sense, particularly supertizing. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail in supertizing now. You know I could waffle on for a bit. It's a thing I'm quite interested in. But um, perhaps that's an episode in and of itself at some point. But effectively, this idea of immediate recognition of, uh, of groups within five and then the ability to... Um, recognize groups larger than that based on those initial um, uh, skills of immediate recognition. I think, like you say, the aspect of color using things like double-sided counters and 10 frames. Um, again, for those of you who are not familiar with 10 frames, Google 10 frame, it will come up. It's basically a row of five and then another row of five in an array of squares that you can put objects inside. So you can start to see seven, depending on how you arrange it as a five at the top and then a two at the bottom, or you can see it as four and three, if you arrange it in a different way, etc, etc. And being able to 
begin to recognize, well, I know that's four, I know that's three, and I know from that that that's seven. And then the number bonds develop in tandem with the supertizing and it's they kind of reinforce one another. I think it becomes um, interesting when you then go past bonds inside 10 because obviously the, uh, the bonds inside and 210 um, are they're the fact they're the, the building blocks of what comes next because I think often for a lot of children the stumbling blocks are the bonds kind of you know single digit numbers that add up to 11 12 13 14 15 etc um, and again if you think about if, if I think about the ways that I've had success is going back to um, to their ability to perceptually and conceptually supertize and then using those skills with 10 frames to start saying things like, well, okay, how do we add or how might we add nine plus seven? And so obviously when we come to add nine plus seven, eventually we want them to go, well, it's, it's 16, isn't it? We just know it. Um, there's kind of an intermediate step that catalyzes things along the way. Um, like um, in particular, um, what uh, is described as, I think, thinking tools or calculation strategies, depending where you come across them, be it through Lipping Mar or Growing Mathematical Minds, which are effectively things like near doubles. So knowing, for example, that nine plus seven can be thought of as double seven and two more, which again is dependent on children knowing their doubles, but it's also dependent on them being able to quickly add two to any number, which again, it means that you have to start thinking about this progression because you can't you can't teach children near doubles until they've developed this automaticity with doubles and until they're confident at adding one or two to any number between kind of like 11 and 20 so you start to have to think about okay so what are the what are the steps in here equally i mean i think the great thing one of my favorite moments of the last year when it comes to the teaching of mathematics didn't happen in any teaching that I did or even a school I work in. I was speaking with my partner who's been working in uh, year seven, children who genuinely, you ask them four add two and their fingers come out at the start of the year. She's now teaching them, having started with a bit of supertizing, which the reason I bring up nine plus seven is because she mentioned to a group of kids, um, she talked about um, bridging through 10 and showed them that in 10 frames. So here's seven. I'm going to move one from here up to here to make this 10, nine plus seven into 10 plus six. She showed them that as near doubles, again, with a visual strategy they could see and that they could apply. And what was fascinating was the fact that one of the lads in her class, who was one of these four plus two on fingers kids only a few months ago, said, oh, well, I visualized that as eight at eight. I took one off the nine and added it to the seven. And then I turned like showing it with his fingers. He said, oh, I took one off here and moved it here. There was no picture anywhere. There was no picture on the board. They, they weren't at this stage. They were at the point where they were just doing a bit of repetition, as it were, which is still really important. But he was saying, oh, yeah, I think of nine plus seven as eight plus eight. And my partner had, had never mentioned anything like that. It was just because they started with this, these, um, because she developed their supertizing, because she represented the kind of visual logic behind um, bridging through 10, through um, near doubles, this kid had started to play with numbers and was able to do the same thing when you started talking about uh, 90 plus 70, for example, and seeing that as double 80. It's, yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough of um, the, the use of calculation strategies as an intermediate step for kids. They still need to do loads of repetition, 
but you can, I, I hate to use this phrase again, because I've used it a couple of times before, but you can catalyze the, the whole thing and reduce the amount of repetition they need by giving them these stepping stone uh, strategies like calculation strategies. Uh, Lipping Ma talks about these in a fantastic paper called, if you type in Lipping Ma uh, three approaches, or if you put that in the show notes, it is fascinating the comparison between how I think it's schools in Shanghai teach these kind of number bonds inside 20 and how they build up from number bonds inside 10 um, to number bonds 210 to adding one or two to number numbers inside 20 etc etc all the way up through in this stepwise fashion over I think it's six to 12 months and then she compares it to what she saw in American and in I think in British schools as well it might only be American where it was okay, here's a, here's a load of sums and here's a load of addition and subtraction, get on with it. Um, I've had a lot more success with the uh, calculation strategy approach. Um, I, I'll just say one last thing. I know I've been jabbering for a while now. I apologise. Um, but uh, there are there is there is research out there. I mean, it's interesting. Interestingly put across in growing mathematical minds. Um, there's a bit from people like Art Baroudi, etc., it's worth noting that, I don't know if you would agree with this, I think I might just be regurgitating back to you something you've said to me. I don't think that the research out there is a, you know, it's a, it's a dead cert. I don't think you can say, oh yeah, the research says you have to do it this way and this way works with any level of certainty. But especially not the level of certainty that the likes of, you know, Art Baroudi kind of suggests, but personal experience allied to these kind of having tried to teach it in every way possible over the last kind of 14 years strongly suggests to me that these calculation strategies, for example, are a really great stepping stone and that the first stage of these is perceptual and conceptual supervising and the use of things like 10 frames. And I'll and breathe. Yeah, sorry. Um, I know that's a lot to dig into uh, <laughs> into there. No, you're you're absolutely right, and um, yeah, because I think the tense frame, you know, it, it's your friend. I'm just thinking about that. That's an amazing story, and um, you know that 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 kid's been given the keys to this wonderful place that anyone who can do maths and understands maths, you know, has access to. And now he's he's joined, you know, he's joined the club, and um, which which is amazing because you know he could have been written off very easily. And, and as I think, I'm not sure if I said it, I mean, this is bottom set year seven and anyone who's worked in a secondary school will tell you that bottom set year seven is a difficult thing to teach because you've often got children that haven't got skills that you assume they should have learned in primary school, stuff that goes right back to kind of reception year one, year two stuff, like, you know, number bonds inside 10. And yet you've got a curriculum in front of you that says, oh, okay, so we're talking about I don't know, the first steps into algebra or, or, or even if you've got a, even if you've got a bit of flexibility, it's usually something like, oh, with these, with this bottom set, teach them from white rose year five. And that's, that just doesn't go anywhere near far uh, back enough. I mean, I worked as an intervention teacher for maths and science briefly at the very start of my career with uh, kids of that age. And bottom set kids are utterly switched often not always but often utterly switched off to maths through years of it not making sense and i'm convinced in a lot of cases these are perfectly capable children who have missed out on the supervising and um 
yeah, effectively, I think it's often supertizing principles of counting, the basics of number sense at the very beginning. And for that reason of kind of missed out. So to hear when Sylvia talks about them kind of enjoying mathematics again, and like you say, feeling like it's theirs, not, it's not someone else's. This is my strategy. I see this. I see how this works. It's yeah, it really made my day when when she told me about that. While you, while you were speaking, I was thinking about what we've got in place. And because we've mapped out our curriculum from, what, 3 to 11, we, our, our year one kids, we might be working with 10 until Easter time, possibly, in year, in year one. You know, and then, and then it goes to, we, we, we start exploring within 20, within 40, and then within 100. Because I know that if they follow the sequence we've got, by the time they get to year six, they will have a really deep and, and rounded understanding of, of that which we've just decided is important for them to understand in terms of mathematics. Um, so I, I do think your, your point on focusing on those smaller parts and then reaping the benefits later on is probably the most salient one. Um, because when you can do those smaller bonds you know, automatically, then it makes larger larger calculations much much more easily accessible. I think, like I said, more more chunks, and um, and I think that, that that moves on nicely to where we go to next. And um, so once we once we've got those bonds, say within and two twenty, sort of down, what what would your next steps be? I I'd say that the like where we go next with them really is all of arithmetic or so much of it. I say all of arithmetic. I, I think that um, beyond, you know, we have a similar um, conversation further down the line about the need for automaticity in uh, multiplication tables, though those obviously are to some extent facilitated at first by number bonds. But really it's things like um, your number bonds inside 100 with multiples of 10. It's uh, number bonds inside 100 that aren't multiples of 10. So which obviously leads into things like dealing with money, dealing with measures, um, etc. I think there are so many aspects of mathematics that we just go, oh, yeah, obviously we need that bit of number. There's going to be some addition and subtraction involved there. And all of that stuff, as, as, on the assumption that a calculator isn't coming out at any point, all of that stuff traces its, um, I'll use the word again, lineage right back to, um, to number bonds. I think there's an extent to which there's a value in, um, like you say, developing them inside 40, developing them inside 100, but also then looking at the ways that, I mean, it's, this goes right back to our the, the start of our conversation where we were talking about, um, you know, what's what's the value of them because obviously if you know seven plus five quickly um, and automatically you then know seven or can be through your understanding of place value you can know 70 plus 50 you can know 87 plus five you can know 700 plus 500 7000 plus 5000 you can know 0 0.7 plus 0 0.5 etc etc and it just you know it just keeps on going I mean, and this is, I love sharing with children this idea that, oh, you know, seven plus five, do you? Brilliant. Okay. What do we know from that? And they start to see that it's effectively uh, an infinite array of facts that can be derived from that. Um, I mean, in practice, it isn't infinite, but it's still um, from, a, from a few basic facts, you have this um, whole world of mental arithmetic 
open to you and also all of this um, arithmetic that relates to other aspects of maths suddenly becomes easier and suddenly you know cognitive resources are freed up for you to understand what's going on and to focus on what what you're doing um i guess i mean that's where i would say it goes next it's obviously of such importance such importance i think we can't really underplay the extent to which children having or to close to well automatic or quick recall of number bonds the the, the the extent to that the way that that opens up the rest of mathematics for them and makes their life so much so much easier um i guess i mean to 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 use the, the commonly um, expressed analogy it's a bit like learning to drive your, your number bonds knowing your number bonds is like being able to use the clutch the brake the accelerator and the gears without having to think oh okay so my left foot goes down here and then i move this to the left once that's automatic <laughs> automatic's probably not a great phrase to use when i'm talking about a gearbox um, but you know what i mean once that that's um you've got that and it's it's immediately um, you can do it with without having to think about it it's unconscious um once you can do that you can concentrate on the traffic you can concentrate on where you're going you can understand and dare i say to stretch the analogy a little bit you can turn on the radio and so actually the process of whatever you're doing can become that little bit more beautiful and enjoyable not just um you know productive just not in pragmatic terms um, so I think it actually frees you up not just to be better at mathematics, but actually just to enjoy mathematics and to be able to appreciate the beauty of it as well. So, um, yeah, I think that is a pretty stretched analogy, but I'm sticking with it. Is that the is that the point at which knowledge becomes tacit? Is it tacit knowledge that you're talking about there? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah absolutely. I think ta tacit would definitely be a more sensible phrase to use than automatic, given the analogy I was trying to desperately chisel out from somewhere. Um, but yeah, it's obviously, uh, yeah, I, I can't really say more on how um, valuable these number of bonds are. Hence the fact that I guess this is the uh, place to start. It's, it's when you think about the alternatives that it really strikes you how important it is. You know, way back in the old, the old sats when you could have resources in Key Stage 1, I saw a kid do a count-all strategy with cubes, and I think it was 124 plus something else. And it was a very, you couldn't say anything. You were just sitting there sort of in the room while the child worked through this maths. Um, and it was, it was a painful process because you knew that there were 124 plus um, opportunities for this to go badly wrong. You know, whereas with knowledge of bonds, knowledge of number and that, that number sense, um, you can avoid that. Or the sort of the worst option, you sit there and you totally disengage with the mathematics altogether because you don't even have a count all strategy. You just have, this is too much. I don't have the requisite knowledge. I'm not getting involved. And then you're, you're never involved, you know? Now, it's funny, actually, you should, now I've just literally remembered the reason um, why I actually kind of still on, I'm still on Twitter and I'm still engaged with these sorts of conversations and I've probably the reason why I've um, in the long run had this great opportunity to be on your podcast is that um, I had a conversation about this stuff with Matt Swain about, oh, I'd say 18 months ago. And we disagreed at the time. And I think we probably still disagree on it, which is, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and it might just be a sign of the schools he's worked in and the great work he's done and the, you know, my inadequacies as a teacher in comparison. But the initial conversation that we had um, that kind of, 
drew me drew me in was this was a discussion of if you went into a year six classroom right now how many of them in your school would you say um obviously not right now they're not in school lockdown yada 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 but in, in an average year six class in under normal circumstances how many of the children could you say to them okay what's seven plus five and how many of them would just say mm, it's 12 or even with a momentary pause would go uh it's 12 but quick enough that you know they haven't put seven in their head and then gone eight nine ten etc how many would um and i i still reckon I think Matt thinks it's higher than this. I, I don't think it is. I would say, honestly, I don't think it tops 50%. I don't think that more than half of kids have automatic recall of um, number bonds inside 20. Um, from my experience, anyway, I think that, that most are, are relying on a, um, a count on strategy still. I, don't, I think there are very few that are still relying on a count all strategy whereby, you know, they write down seven dashes and then another five dashes and they count the lot. But I think a count on strategy, put seven in your head, count on, often on fingers, is so often the point at where their, 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 their number one knowledge grinds to a halt and again often that I think that's because of the lack of opportunities that you've talked about providing in your school to deal with numbers to develop number sense to, 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 to develop their supervising use of 10 frames etc so yeah in terms of the picture nationally I think that's where we're at I think it's less than half of kids in year six would and having spoken with secondary school teachers dealing with year seven um, they kind of back me up on that I think a bit does that I was about to say, does that reflect your experience? But I'd be very surprised if it does now, given the work that you do to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen across schools. But outside of the brilliant work you're no doubt doing, would you say that that's your experience? Um, I, I think so. I think it, it's quite often the pitfall. Um, I need to go right back. You know, because technically my role is a key stage two role. But one of the first things I did was sit down with the early years team and sort of say, this is what we're doing. because. I'm not really interested in whether or not I'm still around whenever these kids are feeling the benefit and whether the school's feeling the benefit of, of the work. But it's because you, you just know that putting the effort in early on is much, much better than trying to put any than trying to do anything later on. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think that's where we fall down is not enough investment at the earliest stage. And obviously we're we're talking about primary here, but I think you know we do have people who listen who are in early years and they'd probably agree that that's where our investment needs to be. You know, I, I always say about that's where our best teachers need to be. And I think it's also where our deepest thinking needs to be because the, the I think I, I must have been two years in when I heard about the principles of Kyneton and my mind was blown. And I know that everybody I've spoken to about since, they had the same mind blown moment when they realized just how difficult Kyneton was. Um, and I think that that's the solution to, as you say, it's, it's almost endemic that there are so many kids who don't know their number bonds by heart and as a result are excluded from the, the world that we know is, is so beautiful in, uh, as you, in, your, in your fine car analogy. You know, you know, we get, you know, if, if you can solve beautiful problems um, using that, that, the most rudimentary of knowledge, then the sense of well-being and the sense of enjoyment you know, is, is through the roof. Um, and it, it can't be overstated how important this is, because not only is it something that we can really enjoy, but it's also almost a minimum 
for access in the world and being socially function, socially functional um, or functioning in society. You know, I can't stress it enough, really. I think just the last thing to mention is that I don't want um, teachers out there who uh, to, to think that, OK, that this is it's full stop a panacea that, you know, you you put all of these things in place and you barely need to do you barely need to repeat these things it's just going to fall into their mind i think there's still absolutely an extent to which that once you've got these in place uh, and once children have developed number sense etc that you still need to do quite a lot of repetition there's still uh, okay so and specifically little and often repetition five minutes here or there um i think for example um the, the app numbots um, is, is one of many ways that you can develop that repetition. And again, that operates seemingly on a, or I think it probably operates most effectively on a little and often way of doing things. You absolutely still need to, um, there still needs to be that repetition. But I think, again, going back to that, um, I'm, I'm torturing a few analogies today, but going back to this idea of a chemical reaction, it you can speed it up, you can catalyze this reaction effectively through develop the development of children's number sense through the investment of expertise in the early years year one and etc um but in the end that reaction still needs to happen children are still need to go are going to need to do a number of calculations in order for that to become um second nature um so yeah i just wanted to make that clear as well because the last thing i want is teachers to think that oh i do i did this and then it did just fall into place i think it's absolutely the case that there still needs to be repetition it's just i think it, you'd be surprised how much less repetition you sometimes need to do with you know the majority of children if these foundations are put into place um appropriately yeah that, that's really fair i think it, it's very difficult in this kind of context for us to cover absolutely everything but you've done a really good job there of bringing around hopefully over the over the course of many episodes people will see almost a, a rounded picture but there's only you know we have to be pretty focused this is our ideal scenario and um, you know you mentioned numbots i was definitely going to as well and um, because again this is another thing that i've got in my schools but had an opportunity to really explore with my own um six-year-old during lockdown the you know version one and um, and how, how carefully they've crafted the story you know from subitizing or subitizing, sorry, um, three cogs. No, no, don't apologise. We're going to interrupt here. Both are fine, I think. I, 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 I promise I'm not just showing off by saying subitizing. I heard Bernie Westercott say it, and I'm not going to disagree with uh, the man, the legend, Bernie. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it was Bernie I was apologising to. <laughs> um. Yeah, so, and, and they've got this... Oh, well, that's fair enough then. Yeah, it's apologising for me. <laughs> they've, got, they've got this really carefully crafted journey, and it, and it is that repetition, and the kids want to. What I, what I would say, and we've had, we've had this conversation before, the hardest part is getting the kids on because they're so young sometimes. Um, and so having someone responsible for having, you know, a few already partially logged in and then they can just hit the final bit where they had to you know match up their name with uh, with a printed picture you know and then that almost takes away the laborious stuff because getting kids that young onto ipads you know and often schools will have multiple layers of security before they can get into their ipads you know we need to take that away but once they're on they really enjoy it and um, and one thing we do quite well is we get our parents in 
and we have them playing times tables rock stars with their kids and we have them playing numbots with their kids so then they know you know they're going through the process of this is how we log on this is what the game's about but really it's half an hour of them bonding with their child over over maths and i think that that's the way to get the most out of it but it, it's um you know it's it, it's superb value for money and um, you know both times tables rock stars and uh, numbots crazy it's it's crazy good when you think of i mean i i went on a not without naming names uh, i did a C, bit of cbd the other day and at the end of it i genuinely remember because i got an email to about sending someone's password out etc cetera, etc cetera, i remember thinking wow what we spent on numbots was significantly less than the cpd that i just did that wasn't particularly great and this is all of the kids that we have across i mean the school i work in has 800 plus children and they're on numbots times table rock stars for it, 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 it yeah it's crazy value for money um i'd highly recommend it to any school um yeah i can't i can't say fairer than that with regards to the the app itself no, and I think it's because Bruno's heart is in the right place. And what he wants is every child to be successful in, in maths, you know. And, and I'll not embarrass him by saying lots of the things, the wonderful things he's done over the years. But, you know, he cares so much. And, you know, it's not a financial decision he's made to start this wonderful company. You know, he really wants to make a difference. And I think, you know, certainly in, in the case that I can speak to my school's experience, he is making a massive difference through what he's done over the last, you know, I think it's been 10, this is possibly year 11. And... Um, and you know it's it's amusing, you know. So hats off always, you know. I think he's he's the, he's the best of us, you know. In my, in my opinion, hundred percent. I mean, nothing nothing but nothing but admiration for what what he what he and the people who have no doubt worked and supported him have achieved there. So, as fascinating as listening to us might be, <laughs> what what might teachers read to take their thinking in a di- in different direction on this subject? Um, well, obviously, I think I've already referred to it, but I think it's well worth uh, going back to there. I think um, Baroudi's work, Art Baroudi's work in Growing Mathematical Minds, again, I I find it hard to, re- to recommend his work too wholeheartedly because, uh, because, I, because he overstates this, I think, the certainty that there can possibly be on this subject. But I still think it's a very interesting read. I think Growing Mathematical Minds is um, his... The, the part of the book in there that talks about his work is really valuable. I think the book is valuable generally as well. As I said before, Lipping Mars, um, strat- uh, three, uh, three approaches, it's called uh, uh, three approaches to one digit arithmetic. Uh, I think it's called a one dish and addition and subtraction. And um, that's a kind of 20 or 30 page uh, paper. Really, um, really great. You can find that easily online. Um, if I remember correctly, there's some good bits and pieces in, um, as there is on pretty much all of primary mathematics in books by um, Derek Haylock and uh, Anne Coburn, the early mathematics books there, and also his book on um, prim- uh, prim- primary mathematics explained for teachers, etc. It's, um, oh, sorry, mathematics explained for primary teachers, I should say. But I would especially go to Lipping Ma. I think the way that she talks about the structured journey in particular schools in, um, I think it's Shanghai, possibly China generally, um, it is re- really eye-opening. It's completely, ch- it completely changed my thinking on this stuff, and I think it might do that for some listeners as well potentially. Nice. Um, I think I was going to go for Hellock as well, and um, and something you did recently, which I recommend anyone, you know, if you're interested in the fact that we were talking about structures. Look at Dirk Haylock's interpretation of structure 
look at the NCTM spines and then marry the two up and see where they agree and where they disagree, you know, because there are no, there are no absolutes. Um, and it's, I think if this is something you're interested in and it's piqued your interest, you know, maybe look at the two together and then see, see, see what then what's going on in that, in that sort of, you know, that tete-a-tete between um, two really well-constructed sort of explanations of structure. If you can get hold of it as well, or if you can find it somewhere, um, the um, scheme, I think Maths Mastery as well, I think they have a very, uh, really logical way of looking at things. You're absolutely right. These mathematical structures um, of um, structures of arithmetic for addition and subtraction, there is no correct way way of looking at these uh, things necessarily. Um, uh, But I, I think looking at those in... And, and trying to work out what you think is a logical way of putting these um, together. I mean, I think that's a, the structures of arithmetic is a fascinating subject that I think we could talk about again at some point as well. If people are, if there's anyone who's listened to this who's particularly fascinated by structures of arithmetic, uh, feel free to get in touch with me on Twitter because I've got some bits and pieces uh, that I've put together, um, some some CPD videos and this sort of thing that might might be of interest. Um, but yeah, really, I, I, I think you're, I think that's a really great recommendation there that you've made. You say it might be of interest, but I know that those those videos are very high quality, and and that you know people definitely should reach out, and that that's very generous. And so I think the next section then is almost an attempt to engage with people's questions on social media because we're you know I've always said the that maths Twitter is the best Twitter, you know, and, um, you know, no offense to anybody who, <laughs> maybe I'll cut that bit. <laughs> no, don't you dare. And you leave in this bit where you say you were going to cut that bit. You leave that in. Matt's Twitter is the best Twitter. If, if the, you know, I'm happy to, what we, what we lose on the, we lose in one group of people, we get, no, you're right, cut it out, cut it out. <laughs> you know, I've always said that Matt's Twitter is a really, you know, supportive collective of of, um, of minds. Um, so, and I'm very keen that, you know, the, the conversations we have don't just stop with us and don't just stop with the interviewees. Um, and recently someone asked, and I won't say who, because I haven't really spoken to him about this, but obviously if they do want in the future, you know, uh, it's okay if you use my name in the question. Um, but it was a case of how young would you go with the silent teacher? Because obviously Neil Alman talked about his use of the silent teacher as one of his key principles in his teaching one of the key features and um, and so that got me thinking you know how how young would you go with that so i think how, let's start with you christopher what do you think well it's, it's interesting um because the, the, i mean i think the nature of um the, the, that particular method or at least where i first encountered it or a description of it was um craig barton's how i wish i'd taught maths um, and so part of me had always assumed it was a um secondary mathematics thing but I, I gave it a go and had some success with it I think um in key stage two and when I started working in year two I thought well let's let's see how this works Ch- chosen with carefully chosen content particularly challenging procedures and algorithms things perhaps with multiple steps you, I you'll be stunned at how quickly children are saying to you oh can you sign and teach that bit Again, maybe this just reflects on me as a practitioner, that maybe there's an extent to which I need to learn when to shut up and when I'm modelling something and 
from this podcast. Generally, you might have learned, I need to learn to shut up generally. But um, I, I found that even in year two, with well-chosen content, works fine. I wouldn't dare start saying lower than that because I think, firstly, I've not tried it lower down the school than that. Uh, and then secondly, I also think there are, um, it has to be so carefully chosen that you almost need to see how it works with an older age group before you go down lower, before you go down lower, et cetera. So personally, I, would, I wouldn't want to recommend people use that strategy below year two, but I would say that with carefully chosen content, particularly procedural stuff in maths, I think it can work in year two and above, personally. What about you? Where do you come down on this question? So one of the one of the beautiful things about my job is that I could be anywhere from nursery to six and, you know, during a given week. And so, but I'd never actually thought about, have I ever used the silent teacher? So, so I thought about it quite long and hard. And Neil did a really good job in answering at the time, you know, via, via Twitter. And, and I've come to the conclusion that I do it but I don't codify it as the silent teacher with the teachers I'm supporting. Because normally I will codify things so that I can transfer, you know, my practice to another, another teacher. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, my favorite examples for in, when I'm talking about maths, aggregation and augmentation. And a large part of is the bringing together. And I know this is a fantastic time for me to choose not to make a video version, but essentially, you know, your aggregation is you bring in two separate amounts together and you're bringing your hands from side to side and that matches up with the British Sign Language. Augmentation, on the other hand, you've got one hand out and you bring the other down from an almost like a, an arc on top of it. And that's showing you that you're augmenting the value. And that's almost part and parcel. And I don't think I explain, I, I talked about that until I've modeled it a few times. Um, if that makes sense. And the same with, you know, when you're flipping counters on a 10 frame, you might just have it on the whiteboard, on the visualizer, and you'll quietly flip it over. And you'll look to see what the response is to what you've done. You know, you're trying to draw attention and you won't necessarily talk over that point. So then the question for me becomes, should I codify this? Or is it just something that you can't explain? You know, because... There's no hard and fast rule for when that will happen. It'll be a decision I make in the second thinking, okay, right now I just want to see what they're paying attention to without it being my voice. I think that's an interesting point because actually, I mean, what Barton defines as kind of silent teacher is quite a specific process that involves kind of tapping with the pen and all these kind of things. Whereas kind of further down the school, it goes without saying that there are moments where you're modeling something where you just think, no, the kids need me to be silent while I do this. Even if it's 10 seconds or 20 seconds, they will benefit from me not yapping for a bit while I show them this. Um, and how that develops from a bit of silent modelling to a, if you like, um, procedural idea of silent teacher where the children are really familiar with exactly how you're going to model something out might not be a sudden like click where it goes from one to the other it might actually be something of a continuum between a little bit of silent modeling because it's beneficial to a stepwise procedural way of doing silent modeling um or sorry doing silent teacher um so i, I guess in some ways there's no correct answer to that because where it begins to be proper silent teacher depends doesn't it 
Yeah, I think I think thinking about it, it had been so long since I'd read Craig's book that I'd forgotten how well defined and sequential it was. So I'm now thinking on the spot, it's silent modeling that's appropriate. And then you, yeah, 100%, then you call it, the, you codify it as the silent teacher when you've got those important steps that are that are outlined in the model of the silent teacher. Yeah, so that, that's where I stand on it. I think silent modeling, good. And I'd probably, probably go as far as, I'd probably go as far as to say that my, what I call silent teacher in year two probably doesn't marry up perfectly with um, the, the particular step-by-step procedure that Craig Barton spells out in his books. So yeah, whether that counts as silent teacher or not, I, I, I don't know. It's probably the same thing, but with um, fewer steps or in a, in a slightly more um, fluid way because of the nature of the class with a slightly greater willingness to interrupt if I, if I need to. Um, just going back very briefly on a point you made there, you're talking about, um, I think just because this goes nicely full circle with what you were talking about with um, the structures of arithmetic, augmentation, aggregation, and you visualise the idea of um, aggregation as things coming together. It's interesting that, um, that that's, uh, Haylock would kind of look at it that way, um, whereas say something like mathematics mastery or um, I probably, I don't know with the NCETM, I'm, I'm trying to remember, they kind of see it as their view of aggregation is the things are already present. You know, aggregation is our sets that are kind of already there, whereas augmentation they describe as anything that involves a change in some way. So as soon as you're kind of, I I know what you mean with bringing hands together. I think you're right. I agree. I think that suits aggregation in all forms, but it's almost like you can already see what's in both of my hands now we're looking at we're thinking about the whole thing um yeah sorry just a, i you might want to cut that bit out but i think that's an, a potentially interesting aside on um what we were talking about with structures though that might make more sense in a, a later episode if we ever if you ever decided to go that way um yeah no i, I think you're right um i like i take my inspiration from sign language because it's you know two fingers out and then they're brought together at the same time and and you know something like the grammar and the the vocabulary of, of a language doesn't develop by accident. It's it's this representation of what we understand, um, and so yeah. So that's where I'm always tying together our idea of mathematics and, repre- and representation with also the fact that language is this representation. And so yeah. So like I said, there's no there's no one answer, but it's it's a it's a massively interesting um, area, and I think it's definitely something we should come back to. Chris, it's been fascinating discussing number bonds with you tonight. We'll be back the same time next week. Um, until then, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Yep, thanks for having me on, Kieran. Uh, it's a pleasure as always. Mm-hmm.